Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and down through verse 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. This is the fourth passage in Hebrews that's called a warning passage or a stern passage because of how the writer speaks to the readers. And he's not only speaking to them, he does include himself as he speaks this way, verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning willfully. And so this call to these readers regarding the danger of apostasy is coming to the whole group of people who are receiving this letter. This letter that begins like an essay, proceeds like a sermon, but ends like a letter. There's a lot of uh, sermon-like quality to it, and this is one of those sections where there's a very stern warning calling the people to account and to look at their life. He has given an illustration of what he's talking about here back in chapter 3. You turn back to chapter 3 for just a moment. What does apostasy look like without looking in detail at chapter 3? I think there's enough general knowledge for us to understand. Notice in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
And then he says, take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So what's the illustration? The illustration is that generation who came right through the Red Sea with Moses, who saw the plagues, who were at Mount Sinai, but eventually did not enter into the land because they did not believe. They did not believe God's promises. They fell away. And as Paul says in Corinthians, they, God laid them low in the wilderness. Not all of them, remember Joshua and Caleb believed the Lord and God let them eventually into the promised land, but that generation died off in the wilderness. Many, many people who did not enter into the promised land. What is the writer talking about here? He's talking about apostasy. What is apostasy? It's not simply the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of someone who came to the truth and then deliberately turned away. What is apostasy? One author writes, A.W. Pink, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. It is a making shipwreck of the faith, 1 Timothy 1.19. It is the heart's departure from the living God, Hebrews chapter 3.12. It is a returning to and being overcome by the world after a previous escape from its pollutions through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says there are various steps which precede it. First, there is a looking back like Lot's wife, who though she had outwardly left Sodom, yet her heart was still there. Secondly, there's a drawing back, Hebrews 10, 38. The requirements of Christ are too exacting to any longer appeal to the heart. Third, there is a turning back, as many of the disciples did in John chapter 6. Remember, they turned away from Jesus, and Jesus said to his disciples, will you also go away? And what did they say? Peter responded with, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The path of godliness is too narrow to suit the lustings of the flesh. That's why there's a turning back and forth. He says there's a falling back, which is fatal, that they might go and fall backward and be broken. Isaiah 28, verse 13. A shipwreck. The heart's departure from God. A returning to and being overcome by the world. A look back. A drawback. A turn back of falling back. It's a tragedy. It's awful. What is the sin of apostasy? If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, I think we have somewhat of a description here. In the context, he is calling, this author is calling these readers to draw near to God through Christ, who is the great priest who's offered the perfect sacrifice, they are to come through faith, having been cleansed by God, and they're to hold fast to that confession, and they're to help one another. They're not to forsake the assembling of themselves together. 
And so it's in that context that he describes this sin of apostasy. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what is the sin of apostasy? Well, first of all, as we see the language here in verse 26, it is willful sin in the light of truth. And I don't believe that it's merely uh, forsaking of worship services, but it's actually forsaking not only the services, but the truth that is being proclaimed there. That being said, it's a dangerous thing to start missing those times when God's people gather together because there's a reason that God's people gather together. No, this person, as they turn from the truth, willfully turn from the truth. And I want to ask you to turn, just by way of a cross-reference, to 1 Peter chapter 5. I was helped by someone who made this observation. We might look at willful sin and say, well, I sometimes sin willfully. I know that I choose the path of sin. But I want you to look at the distinction that's made here in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5 as he's talking to shepherds in the church. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. What is compulsion? Well, there's a there's another motive. There's some pressure that's being brought to compel the person. But voluntarily means of your choice, your eager choice to do it. And so you've got an element on the one hand, compulsion, which may have a variety of different motives that are compelling a person. But on the other hand, and this is what he's recommending there, just an eager and voluntary pursuit of shepherding God's people. Okay, go back to the passage, Hebrews chapter 10. It's really that eager and voluntary sense that he's talking about here, but he's talking about in the context of sin. If we go on sinning willfully, without some kind of compulsion, it's not like temptation is coming our way and against the inclination of our heart renewed by the Spirit of God and the Spirit's convicting. We're, we're still, in other words, there's some forces at work, but we choose it. And yes, we choose it, but, but we're sorry about it. No, this instead is a willful pursuit of that sin. Another thing I want to point out, and I say a willful it's an eager pursuit of it. Another thing I want to point out is, it says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What is the truth in the context? Well, the truth is the gospel. He's just in verses 19 and down through verse 22 talked about the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is, of course, about access and drawing near to God by means of 
Christ's shed blood and his sacrifice. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sins through faith in his name. It's about his cleansing of our lives by his grace and mercy. So the person who is sinning willfully also has that knowledge. They they know the truth. They know the truth of the gospel. Something that I think is helpful to consider, and I already pointed it out, but I think it's worthy of emphasis, is that the writer here is including himself as he talks about this possibility. Notice what he says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth. So there might be someone who says, well, I'm secure and once saved, always saved, and I don't have anything to worry about because I know that I'm secure in Christ. I know the teaching of Scripture with regard to the purpose of God. And my purpose this morning is not to shake anyone's assurance, but we have these warning passages in Scripture for a reason. They're not meaningless. And this warning is meaningful even to the writer. Why does he say we? Because he's considering every person. Depending on who you think the writer is, if this is Paul or someone else in the apostolic company, we might think he would have excluded himself from this statement. But he includes himself as one who needed to hear this admonition. One writer says, to reach his readers in a pastoral manner, he even includes himself in the warning not to sin defiantly. So there's a reason he is saying this and including himself. And then he goes on to say, this author says, he's not talking about a believer who falls into sin unintentionally and finds forgiveness in God's grace and mercy. No, this is a going on and sinning willfully with knowledge. And I think another point to help us is the way that he words the first part of the statement. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully. This is an ongoing state or condition of sin. It's not a single sin, but an ongoing condition of willful sin. Again, an eager pursuit of sin. One writer described it as graceless, a graceless and reprobate state characterized by two things, deliberateness and continuance. And in the context, it involves a deliberate forsaking of God's people and a forsaking of the sacrifice of Christ. Because that's what's going on in the congregation that is assembling together that he's talking about in verse 25. It's this assembly that holds up Christ to be the high priest and also the sacrifice. It's this assembly 
that has believed the gospel and is confessing the gospel. But this, in the context, would be a person who may be tempted to go back to that old system of shadows where the Jews were worshiping at the temple, and that was a shadow, as he's argued earlier in Hebrews, of realities in heaven which were fulfilled in Christ when he died upon the cross. How do we know those were shadows? Well, we have, for instance, John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by the end of John's gospel, it's the Lamb of God who is slain for sinners. We understand that that picture in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. So there's no need to turn back to those shadows. And I'm saying in context, it could refer to someone like that. But we could also say someone who is committing apostasy is someone who left and abandoned their confession of Christ and just pursues a path of sin deliberately, continually. They leave that assembly and they no longer confess the truths that they once said that they did. It could be someone who just leaves Christ and pursues their own lusts and desires and never returns to Christ, doesn't seek forgiveness, doesn't look for any mercy from God. And as the writer says in the end of verse 26, if that is true, if someone pursues that path, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He has just gotten done explaining the sacrifice and the covenant and the ministry of Christ. That is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had taught. It's the substance that relates to the shadow. So to leave that substance, to leave that sacrifice, the one true sacrifice, the one that truly did cleanse sins, there's not salvation outside of that. You can't go find something else that is effective. There's no longer any sacrifice for sins. Now, if you look at verse 26 and you see the word we, and you recognize this is either Paul or someone in the apostolic company writing under inspiration, and you're thinking, okay, but this is a saved person. This is someone who knows, and yet they are saying there's the possibility that someone could sin willfully and leave all that. And I think it's helpful to remember that while the Scripture presents the teaching about God's purposes in salvation and even teaches us the chain of God's redemption, starting in eternity past, predestination, God's foreknowledge, and then election, and then his calling in time, and then justification, sanctification, glorification. We know that that is an unbroken chain, and it is true in the purpose of God, and we can rejoice that that is true. And yet there's also the other side, which places human responsibility at the forefront, when there are calls to faith, when there are warnings against turning away. 
In other words, it's not negating the truth of God's purposes, not negating the truth of election or the truth of justification or the truth that I'm secure. But what it does in this passage and others in Hebrews, the emphasis is on the perseverance of God's people as they persevere in the faith. And so the God who appoints the end also appoints the means to the end. And what is the means to the end when it comes to our faith, which ebbs and flows? Certainly a gift from God, but we would say we're the ones who exercise our faith. How is our faith encouraged and strengthened? How do we persevere? Well, we persevere as God uses his word. The encouragement back in verse 23 is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That hope is based upon Scripture, and the one who gave us Scripture is the one who promised, verse 23, he who promised is faithful. It's the faithful word that God uses to build us up, to help us to persevere. God also not only uses his word, he also uses his people. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So alongside each of us comes someone who encourages us in our faith and encourages us to turn away from a path that's harmful and sinful. And God obviously uses the church as well. I think in verse 25 when he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, it's within that context that love is shown, which builds up and edifies, and encouragement is given and in which it's the same context, and it's happening here this morning, God also gives warnings. Strong admonitions not to turn away from the truth. Because to turn away would be devastating. And you might say, well, to turn away would be to show that they, that person was never a believer at all. And we might be able to say that, but at the same time, as I live my life, I haven't lived all my life yet. I haven't faced every trial that has come into my life yet. And I, through my life, will show what kind of ground I am, what kind of soil I am. But the testimony of Scripture, the encouragement of Scripture, is to hold fast to the confession of Christ, You've come to the right place. You've come to Christ. Don't let go. And certainly don't turn into a path of sin, eagerly pursuing your own desires as if God's commands don't matter. Believers listen to God's words. They are helped by other people. They fellowship with the church. They don't stop attending and meeting with God's people to encourage one another, and they don't reject outright God's word and his admonitions not to turn away from the truth. Actually, those warnings and those helps are a help. They're the means by which we do persevere. God helps us to persevere by those means. And yes, he has a point of the end, and I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. Understand, I don't believe the writer of Hebrews or anywhere else in Scripture, if a person's truly saved, when we look at the purpose of God and the plan of God, can a person lose that? No. They're kept by the power of God, but how are they kept by the power of God? Through faith. 
there's an emphasis on that personal responsibility. Now, that reference to judgment, look in verse 27. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. What is the judgment for the sin of apostasy? That deliberate and continuing state of rejection of the truth and turning toward sin? Well, there was no provision of mercy in the law for intentional sin. If you read through the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice to atone for it. Such sins were punishable by death. The intentional and willful sin, the sin in light of knowledge, was a sin of the high hand, and it resulted in being cut off by God or cut off by God's people. If you turn back to Numbers for a moment, chapter 15. Look down at verse 27. Moses writes here, after describing the sacrifice for sin, he says in verse 27, also if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. In other words, there's no sacrifice. There's a sacrifice for the one who does so unintentionally, but for the one who knows and purposes and sins anyway, there was judgment. And if you look through the law, I found a list and I think you could look at Scripture both in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even back in Exodus, and you would find that there are certain sins in Scripture for which there was no sacrifice, there was no means of mercy, there was no, even in some cases, if you appealed for mercy by taking hold of the corner of the altar, the horn of the altar, God said, that for certain sins, that person needed to be removed even from that plea for mercy, and that person was to die. What are those sins? Well, as you look through Exodus, through Deuteronomy, you would find gross irreverence towards God, sacrilege. 
the abuse of one's parents, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry, immorality, kidnapping, murder, rebellion, breaking the Sabbath, witchcraft, the rape of a betrothed virgin, bestiality, child sacrifice, all of those things, the death penalty. Sobering, isn't it? We know we all deserve death for our sin. But specified within the commands of God was certain sins for which there was no sacrifice. You could not, in other words, you could not murder someone and then expect to take your best bull and go to the temple and offer that and everything's okay. No, there's a penalty exacted. There's a certainty of judgment, and it would not be just a slap on the wrist. It was serious. If there's no sacrifice for sins, this is serious. So when he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, that means there's certain judgment coming. And the same thing is true certainly for apostasy, which is what is in the context. Notice in verse 27, the terror involved. If there's no sacrifice for sins, what would the expectation be? If you're caught, it would be judgment. Notice he uses the word, a terrifying expectation of judgment. This word is used a couple times in Hebrews. Twice in this passage, look down at verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One other time in Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer is talking about Mount Sinai, which at Mount Sinai, both when the commands of God were being given and then taken to the people, and following that, there were things that were terrifying for the people to see and hear. As God came down on the top of the mountain, and there's smoke like the smoke of a furnace and fire, and there's an earthquake, and God gives the command to set limits around the mountain so that no one approaches, because if they approach, they will die. Even if an animal comes too close, it needs to be shot through or stoned, not even touched, because it came in proximity to this holy God and Moses himself is fearful. He comes down the mountain at one point at God's direction because the people, remember, had sinned against God, and he breaks he breaks those tablets of stone showing that he believed that they had shattered by their disobedience God's commands. But what is he coming down from? If you were to look up the mountain as Moses is coming down, Moses describes it as the mountain being on fire because of God's anger and his wrath against his people who were sinning at the base of the mountain. And what happened? Of course, blood was shed. Lives were lost because of that idolatry that took place at the base of the mountain. And to see 
the anger of God, the effects of the anger of God, and just the presence of God would cause you to fear. But if you knew that that same God was disposed specifically towards you to pour out his wrath upon you, would that cause you to fear? It better. This is God. Notice the wording in verse 27. It says a terrifying expectation of judgment. That's God's decision against sin. And how does God deal with such sin? With fiery judgment. Fiery judgment. That's really all that's left for someone who is an apostate. Someone who deliberately turns away, pursues the path of their own desires, and continues in that. What are you headed for? Judgment. Fiery judgment. God used fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He used fire with hail in the plagues on Egypt. He, at one point, because of the sins of the people and their murmuring, brought fire to the edges of the camp, and there were fires burning people because God was angry because of their sin. But other times when a leader disobeyed God or did something that God did not command, you remember that fire came right out from the tabernacle and consumed the sinners. Whether it was Nadab and Abihu, imagine that scene. On the day of their ordination, they offer strange fire before the Lord and fire comes out from the tabernacle and kills them. Or the 250 who died by fire in Korah's rebellion. That's more people than are here this morning. There are other times where God used fire to protect his prophet Elijah against those who were coming to arrest him in 2 Kings. Twice, two commanders of 50 came to arrest Elijah representing an idolatrous king, and twice fire came down from heaven and consumed those companies. And the reference seems to be in the passage here, a statement in Isaiah where Isaiah says, O oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for your people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. But we know that's not all in terms of fire. Yes, God has demonstrated his wrath, but he's also promised his wrath. And it also includes fire. First Thessalonians 2, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of, and here we understand the nature of the fire, he says, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and his power, the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among at among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. How is Hades described in Scripture? Where did the rich man go? He went to a place where he was tormented in flame. And what will happen to the devil? To the false prophet? To the beast? 
The scripture says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And of course, that means, based on our passage in Hebrews chapter 10, those who reject Christ and deliberately choose a path of sin, there's no more sacrifice for them. That's the only expectation for them. Now, you say, can a person repent? Well, yes. God can work by his word through the gospel to bring a person to repentance. And we have that hope, so we don't fully know, but there are times where someone is, has rejected and turned away and is pursuing a path of sin, and we could say that's the path of apostasy. That's not the path towards glory. That's not the path towards heaven. That's the path towards fiery judgment. That is opposition to God. And there is no one who opposes God successfully. No one. Spurgeon preached a sermon on Psalm 26, verse 9. David's prayer, which was, Gather not my soul with sinners. And he pictured gatherings in history of sinners and what God did with that gathering of sinners. And these are not sinners who are saved by God's grace, but rather sinners who are set in opposition to God, who would not turn to God. Spurgeon said, wherever the enemies of God are gathered, there we have ere long confusion, tears, and death. In whatever place sinners may hold their counsels, when the judge of all the earth comes out against them, we shall soon see an akeldama. A field of blood. You can't fight against God. And not only is there a field of blood, but what follows that? Because in the context, it's not the bloodshed, it's the end result. And that's fire. Fiery judgment. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Spurgeon went on to say, I'd commend reading that sermon to you. The saints' horror at the sinner's hell is the title of that sermon. He said, I need not stop to paint for colors equal to its terrors. I have none. That dreadful place where the last gathering shall be held. That great synagogue of Satan, the place appointed for unbelievers and prepared for the devil and his angels where sullen moans and hollow groans, the shrieks of tortured ghosts shall be their only music, where weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth shall be their perpetual occupation, where joy is a stranger and hope is unknown. where death itself would be a friend. No, I will not attempt to describe what our Savior bailed in words like these. He said, these go, into, uh, go away into everlasting punishment where their worm dies not and their fire is not quenched. 
outer darkness where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He said, we drop the curtain, hoping that you have seen enough to make you pray. Gather not my soul with sinners. I don't want to be found with sinners in the end. I am a sinner. But I want to be one who has been saved by God's grace, redeemed by Christ's blood, found in Christ's presence in the end. Do you? Endless ages of God's punishment. And if you look at that and you say, well, God is too harsh, you don't understand the greatness and glory of God. You don't understand what you're saying this morning. I don't think any of us do. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Do we understand that? Gather not my soul. May none here be gathered with those sinners in the end. Come to Christ. Find salvation in his blood. Don't take the path of the apostate to turn away or to stay away. You know, this is a righteous judgment. Look at verse 28 in the passage. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just stating a fact about the law. Some of the things I've already talked about with regard to no sacrifice for sins, only the expectation of judgment, no mercy, when two or three witnesses can testify to the guilt of a person, a person who had committed such a crime. And the key word here, I think it's important to see what he says there in verse 28. It says, anyone who has set aside, that word set aside is that idea of willful sin. It's a deliberate and purposeful despising of and setting aside the commandment. We didn't read the rest of Numbers chapter 15, but if you look at the end of Numbers chapter 15, there's a man out gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And you would look at someone gathering wood and you would say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's on a Sabbath day. Well, that can't be that serious of a sin. Wait a second. Everybody knows that. God had told Israel coming out of Egypt, this is a sign between you and me that you'll observe my Sabbaths. And here's this person who goes out and is deliberately and intentionally despising God's words because he wants to gather wood on the Sabbath. And what was the result for that man who had knowledge of the commandment? It wasn't to go to the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice. Oh, I'm sorry for breaking the Sabbath. That's not what happened. The man was executed, and rightly so. He sinned against knowledge. That's what the law specified. Death by stoning. No appeal to the priest, no taking hold of the horns of the altar. And that's the law of Moses. I mean, that's the law that God gave through Moses. We know it's the divine law. We're not trying to diminish the importance of the law. We're just saying 
That's the law. That's the that's what the law specified. That's what happened. It's what God had said, and, and they obeyed God. And if you say, well, that was a human life, and God is being too, being too harsh, I think you have too high of an estimation of human life. That you think that human life is more important than the honor of God. And it is not. Look how many times in Scripture God is disobeyed and the right judgment is given. We think, oh, God's being harsh. No, he's not being harsh. That person offended God and sinned directly against God. And of course, we value life. Even the commandment says you must not kill. God even cares for animals, right? He cares when the sparrow falls. So this isn't a diminishing of the value of life. We would say even he values animal life and says you're of more value than many sparrows. So yes, he places a value on human life. But when it comes to the honor of God versus retaining your life, you've disobeyed God. God says no. And here's the testimony. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Do you see then the mercy that God showed to David? Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see the mercy that God showed with David? Not only had he taken Bathsheba, he also killed a man. What should have happened? Nathan said to him, after he said, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan said, you shall not die. God was merciful to him. But he did say, there's going to be trouble for your kingdom. So what about this sin of apostasy? If... If under the law of Moses, someone could die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, this is what God specified. We get an argument here from the lesser to the greater. The greater sin is to, notice how he says it, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant with, by which he was sanctified or set apart? and has insulted the spirit of grace. What is he talking about? He's talking about the sin of apostasy, the sin of deliberately turning to sin and pursuing that sin and leaving the gospel and leaving Christ behind. There's no more sacrifice for that, but what is that? What does that look like in God's sight? That's like taking the Son of God himself and trampling on him. Trampling. It's like someone would take a flag and rip it up and burn it and throw it to the ground and stomp on it. Why are they doing that? They're showing that they despise it, even that they hate it. So this description of apostasy is important for us to understand the seriousness of someone who turns away from the confession of Christ and pursues their own will in defiance of God for the rest of their life. What are they headed for? They're headed for 
judgment. What is that kind of sin? It's a trampling underfoot the Son of God. And who is the Son of God in Hebrews? I hope you have an estimation for the Son of God. I hope you believe in the name of the Son of God, but who is the Son of God? He's the Son through whom God has spoken in these last days. He's the Son who is the heir of all things. He's the Son who's the radiance of the Father's glory, the outshining of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He is the one through whom God made the ages. He's the one who's greater than the angels. He's the one who's greater than Moses, he's the son over the house, whereas Moses is the servant in the house. This is who the son is. He has a better ministry. He's better than Aaron. He's offered the perfect sacrifice. Raise your estimation of the son of God. And the son of God is coming one day. Do you believe in the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, God has to give you the knowledge of that. It's not going to come through your ability to argue or understand. That's what happened with Peter. Remember, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Simon, you're blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. That is a knowledge that God gives. When you have it, you understand that he is mankind's universal king. You won't trample on him. And you won't consider his blood as an unclean thing. That's the next statement. Look at the statement in verse 29. And has regarded as unclean or as common the blood of the covenant. In the context, it's the new covenant that's being spoken of. And the sacrifice that he made as he shed that blood and inaugurated that covenant, as he paid the debt for our sins, as he washes us by the shedding of his blood, he takes the penalty that we deserved, sheds his blood in our place, and of course he earned the righteousness that is then imputed to us. But that blood, how is his blood described in Scripture? The blood of the incarnate Son of God. Well, on one level, I just want to make sure that we understand this. We talked about this earlier on in Hebrews. It's human blood. He's a human being. But he came from heaven to become incarnate. He's an eternal being. He became incarnate in time so that he could die. That's why he became incarnate. That's why he became in the flesh. But as the scriptures describe his blood... Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as a cross-reference, speaks to those who are leading the church. He says, Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is actually blood shed for the purchase of a people. What else did he say about that blood? First Peter 1.18, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. What precious blood. 
and you regard that as common, as nothing, you walk away from that and sin as if that blood didn't matter or cleansed your sins? How could anyone regard his blood as common, that innocent one? And again, we have to be careful not to deify the blood because it's normal human blood, but it's the blood of who that one was. He's the God-man. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Paul says. That blood is precious. It bought our salvation. So to regard it as unclean or common, what a sin. Look at what else he says. And has insulted the spirit of grace. Another description of the sin of apostasy is to insult or to treat in an insolent and spiteful manner the spirit. Notice the wording here, the spirit of grace. He doesn't use the word Holy Spirit, though he is. It's the gracious spirit, the spirit who has shown grace. Why is there grace? Well, the person in the passage, verse 26, has received a knowledge of the truth. There's an illumination of their mind. There's an understanding of the truth which the Spirit gives. That's a gracious thing that he does. The God Spirit works in the world to convince men of sin, of unrighteousness, of final judgment. And so if he has done that, and if he has given a knowledge of who Christ is, then this is gracious that he has done this. But to apostatize is to turn away from all that gracious teaching and to reject it to insult him, to insult the Holy Spirit himself. It's part of the reason that some have compared this to that unpardonable sin, which would be a study for another time, but I'm just saying apostasy. What does it look like? It, it deserves severe punishment because of the kind of sin that it is which is a turning away, a deliberate turning away, a rejection of Christ, and a turning toward whatever is in view, that person's desire, their pursuit of their own sin, and they continue in that for the rest of their life. Well, judgment, judgment is coming, isn't it? This judgment that is righteous is also promised it's expected, but it's actually promised by God. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 30, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. What's the key word there? In both phrases, it's will. And when the Lord says, I will do something, he will do it. Keeps his promises. Vengeance is mine. We think vengeance is wrong, and we're right to think that for ourselves. But God does take revenge. He's the one who can perfectly avenge himself and his people. He's the one to whom vengeance belongs, the scripture says. So don't give, don't, don't revenge yourself. That's what Paul says in Romans. No, don't, don't take revenge yourself, but rather give room or give place to the perfect judge who knows how to do that, and he will. And he will avenge every evil in his universe. Every sin. 
And you might say, well, that's a frightful thing. Well, come under the blood of Christ, find refuge in the sacrifice of Christ. Because when Christ died upon the cross, he took the wrath of God that was headed for us and he covered us. He rescued us from the wrath to come because he absorbed that himself. That's the place of safety. So come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. You find refuge in Christ. You find salvation. But if you're outside of Christ, there's no refuge from the wrath of God. And that's why John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. That's why, in a sense, the prophets said, flee from the wrath to come. And that's why I think it's right for us to say this morning, flee from the wrath to come. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's lots of other imaginations out there. There's lots of other gods that people worship. They're not the living God. They're not the ones who are going to judge in the end. They're not worth following now. They're not going to have any effectiveness any other time in the future. But there is a living God. In fact, within Hebrews, there's an emphasis on the living God. Chapter 3, take care that there not be in any one of you an e evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How much more will the blood of Christ and through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And Jeremiah had said it long before and even Moses before him, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He is the living God in contrast with all the other gods out there that are meaningless. There's one God. He's alive. Moses said, for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? They knew that he was the living God. And even at certain times in their history, they're turning away from the living God and receiving the consequences for their sins. You can turn away from those other gods without consequence. They're not living. But this God, if you turn away from him, he is the living God. And he calls for your worship. Sennacherib was such a fool. He came and with his armies is conquering through Judah, all these cities. And as he comes to Jerusalem, he starts to taunt not only Hezekiah, but the people for their trust in the God that they believed in. He is taunting the people who believed in the living God. In other words, all these other places that he had conquered, and he even asked the question, where are the gods of this place and this place and this place? Where are their gods? Well, they're nowhere. And they were nothings but not this God. When they came and they taunted the people who believed in the living God, when Sennacherib came and did, and did that, he didn't know what he was doing. 
Because Hezekiah prayed, listen to what he said. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, God alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of, the Sen of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone, so they've destroyed them. And you might say, duh, this takes a powerful army. There's no God there. But then he says this, Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And what happens? Before Sennacherib and his armies ever approached, the angel of the Lord singularly goes out and in one night destroys 185,000 in Sennacherib's armies. And Sennacherib goes back to his own, he's still alive, he goes back to his own land in shame. And there he goes to the house of his God. And while he's in the house of his God, his own two sons slaughter him because his God was meaningless. And God demonstrated that he was the one true God. You see, Sennacherib fell into the hands of the living God. I don't want to fall into his hands. And you don't want to fall into his hands, really. That judgment that is coming, divine judgment, when you fall into his hands and are finally judged by him, what does he do? But judge righteously, he's a righteous God. What does he do but separate you from his presence? And how long? How long? It's forever. Endless ages. Endless. Fiery torment. You say, Pastor, you're preaching a lot of hellfire and brimstone. This book teaches this. Read it. See it. I'm not making it up. I'm trying to read and tell you what it says. And warn you from going the path that I'm talking about. Is there anyone here today who's in danger of apostasy? If we're humble, we would all say, yes. So hold fast to your confession. Receive the exhortations from fellow believers. Believe the word of God. It's faithful. Keep meeting with God's people. Let's help one another on to glory. That's a privilege, isn't it? Not only to be going myself, but to be helping others as I minister to my brothers and sisters in the church. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are sobered by this warning.
we are humbled to know, Lord, that we need this warning. If anyone thinks that he stands, let him take heed that he falls, that he might fall. We thank you, Lord, for the comfort and encouragement of the Scripture. We thank you also, Lord, for the warnings of Scripture that call us to persevere, that call us to greater submission to you, greater commitment to you, turning away from the path of sin. Lord, we just ask that you would do your work this morning. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.